Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I'm a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Richard Sprott, who studies identity development, health, and well-being in the context of alternative sexualities and non-traditional relationships. He currently teaches at California State University, East Bay, and he is co-author of the book, Sexual Outsiders, Understanding BDSM Sexualities and Communities. So this is going to be the kink episode. We're going to be discussing Richard's body of research in this area and explore some really interesting questions. We will also dispel some common myths and misconceptions about kink itself and those who practice it. Some of the questions we'll explore include whether kink should be thought of as a leisure activity or as a sexual orientation. We'll also discuss the differences between kink, BDSM, and fetishes, and we'll talk about how kink can actually be good for your health. I'm so excited for this conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Richard, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I'm very glad to be here. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really looking forward to discussing your work. But before we dive into your research, I always like to begin by asking my guests a little bit about their professional journey. So you're a developmental psychologist who studies diverse sexualities and relationships. So how did you arrive here? What sparked your interest in this area? The wonderful thing about being a research psychologist, a developmental psychologist, is that I can go up and down the lifespan. I have done projects with older adults and linguistic and cognitive processing. I've done the development of children's storytelling and argumentative abilities and three-year-olds. I've done a little bit of work on homelessness and LGBTQ adolescents. About Oh, I would say 12, 13, 14 years ago, I decided to make a shift. And instead of doing primarily linguistic, cognitive, social development in children, I decided to switch over to an area that I thought was not getting a lot of attention, that it felt like there was a greater need, and that is sexual identity development. In, in particular, in sexualities that are not uh, normally researched. And I made that big switch. It was a big switch. It sounds like it. <laughs> I, I, went from, I went from, you know, like child language acquisition is incredibly well funded and organized. And there's this huge, you know, feel that that is well supported and organized. And then I jumped into this pool uh, into the deep end of um, sexuality and sexual identity development that was I, I was I was shocked at how little there was in terms of support and it sometimes feels um, like very little um, funding and organization and the theories are um, you know still developing and I, I often feel like we've got a very shaky grasp of human sexuality, even after all of this work. Um, so I, I made that change, and I haven't looked back. Well, it sounds like you've made 
quite a big shift in your career over time, but we're glad to have you doing this work because as you said, there aren't a lot of people doing it. People have a lot of questions and there are lots of myths and misconceptions out there. So that's why I invited you onto the podcast so that we could clear some things up and help people to better understand some sexualities that aren't very well understood in the public, let alone in the, the scientific sphere. So before we dive into your research, let me ask you a definitional question, because I think it's important for framing this conversation. So I often hear people use the terms kink, BDSM, and fetish interchangeably, but I also hear others who distinguish between them, and some of those who do define those terms in very different ways. And I attended a conference talk that you gave a couple of years ago where I thought you explained things really well. So can you just give us sort of the brief primer on kink, fetish, BDSM? What are these terms? What do they mean? I will try. <laughs> At least I will give you my, my current understanding uh, of a kind of messy, complicated area. In my mind, kink is the largest umbrella. It covers BDSM, but more than that. It covers fetish, but more than that. So I prefer to use the word kink to really capture this wide range of sexualities that are focused on intensity of sensations. Um, this can include pain, fascinations with uh, sensory uh, aspects, uh, smells, touch, feel. So that would be the often the fetish aspect. I think of kink, and I use the word kink primarily because that's the term that was used by the community to name itself, to talk about itself, starting back in the 1930s. So it's a community term. BDSM, or bondage and discipline, BD, DS is dominance and submission, and SM is sadism and masochism. BDSM is primarily focused on like power exchange and intense sensation. And the term, I think, originally came from academics. It really came from doctors and researchers and sociologists and psychologists who were trying to describe something that they, you know, did not want to use a, a messy term like kink. Kink is messy, right? It's just all over the place as to what it means and what people mean by it when they use it. So they wanted something a bit more specific. And uh, the term has been adopted by the leather kink BDSM community. But in some ways, it's a newer term, and it's a term that comes really from more from people outside the community than it does people who are building the community and living in the community. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. And then fetish is uh, clearly even more so than BDSM. Fetish is much more connected to uh, as well as sadism, masochism, uh, are terms that really come from psychiatry, from early roots and sexology that was all focused on, wow, these people are sick. We need a medical term for these aberrations in human sexuality. And they came up with those. And 
those have been adopted by people in the community, people doing it. Often they change the meaning of it from what psychiatrists and doctors and, and sexologists were first describing. Each word has its own kind of history and its own shade of meaning. And often I will kind of float back and forth between them all. But sometimes it really, when I want to make a particular point, I will very consciously choose one term and, and tell people, this is why I'm using this term in this context. So, yeah. Kink, I tend to use that as the most because often I'm trying to talk about this huge range of human sexuality. Yeah, and I think for that reason, I'm going to tend to stick to the word kink for our conversation today because, you know, as you said, it refers to a wide range of activities. And But let's talk about some of the things that people get wrong about kink, right? So one of the most common misconceptions is that kink, BDSM fetishes, you know, everything that falls under this umbrella, they've often been considered to be mental disorders or people think of them that way. And that's not surprising considering that for much of recent history, you've seen sadism, masochism, and fetishism listed as disorders in the DSM, the Psychiatry Bible. But in recent years, we've started to see a shift away from that. So in the most recent version of the DSM, they make a distinction between what they call a paraphilia, which is an uncommon sexual interest, and a paraphilic disorder, which they say is an uncommon sexual interest that causes clinically significant distress or other problems in one's life. But even with that distinction, a lot of people still kind of conflate kink and BDSM with disorder. So can you tell us a little bit more about this? What do you think people need to understand about kink and mental health? Oh my gosh, that's a huge question. So there have been a number of studies that have looked closely at, well, what are the person personality profiles or how do people who are doing this uh, kind of kinky stuff, how do they score on measures that are supposed to capture mental disorders? And that research has found that primarily kinky people are no different than people who are not kinky in terms of personality, or in terms of mental disorders. There's, you know, things like oh, well, these people are sick because of some terrible past trauma or abuse, childhood abuse. And when you go and you look at the quality of their relationships now, if you look at the quality of their attachments and their attachment styles, their bonds, bonding styles, what we see is they're no different, right? They're not more insecure or more disturbed. Their relationship satisfaction is the same as or sometimes better than the average population. So there's not a lot of evidence to support this idea that, in fact, kink itself is an expression of some disturbance or arrested development or trauma. Some of my work, though, on the other hand, is trying to understand the impact of stigma and discrimination on kinky people, which can lead to more challenges in terms of health. We call these health disparities. It's essentially the same track that in terms of research and our understanding of uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual people, 
transgender and gender diverse people. The general finding is, oh wait, we first assume all these people are sick and then we discover they're not, they're not really any different. And then we discovered that in fact, they do have particular health challenges. That's not because being gay is sick or being kinky is sick, but because of the context of a tremendous amount of stress being stigmatized and discriminated against or hidden. And that can lead to health problems. That's where the state of the research is these days with kink. And one of the reasons why in our Alternative Sexualities Health Research Alliance, we do a large push on uh, trying to do a, a health survey of people who are kink involved and trying to map these so that we can kind of catch up with LGBT psychology in terms of looking at, you know, are these people mentally disturbed? No. Do they have particular health challenges? Yes. That's what we're doing. But in all of that, the idea that somehow in some way the behavior itself or the type of relationship itself is clearly connected to some disorder or disease or mental aberration. Just there is no evidence for that. Yeah. And so basically what you're saying is that the data aren't there to support the idea that people who have kinky sexual interests are inherently psychologically disturbed and that there's this minority stress effect, right? Because of all of that stigma that they encounter and having to hide their identities and who they are and so forth, that can create a certain amount of distress that can lead to psychological strain, right? So I think that's just another way to, to frame it and think about it. But I want to go back to one thing that you mentioned. So and because it's another common misconception about kink and BDSM, a lot of people make that assumption that it's inherently rooted in trauma, you know, some abusive experience, some victimization that they've experienced. And so, you know, there are a lot of people who say, well, you know, if you're a masochist and you derive pleasure from pain, there was probably some history of abuse there. And you have a lot of people in the kink community who push back against this idea. And I've heard many of them come out and say there's no link whatsoever between trauma and interest in BDSM. But as someone who has studied this, I, I think it has led me to the conclusion that sometimes there is a link between trauma and kink. For most people, there isn't. But for some people, kink and BDSM can be ways that they cope with a history of victimization. And so in that sense, it can actually be sort of therapeutic and healing. So the people who say that there's always a link, I think are wrong. And the people who say that there's never a link are also wrong too. And, you know, the, the truth is usual is, <laughs> is, is somewhere in the middle, but I'm, I'm curious as to what your, your take is on that. Well, my take is essentially that as well. Yes, there's a small group, I think. And there are certainly people I have talked with in some of my interview studies and and my other kind of research that, in fact, I'm conducting a study right now. And I got an email from one of my participants who clearly felt disturbed by their ongoing, long-lasting interest in kink. And they felt like it was a reflection of, of something 
bad that happened to them. As I've said, I've talked to other people who also have had that experience. They are a small part, as far as I can tell, they are a small part of the population of people who are doing kink. But their experience of kink is intertwined with how they're trying to cope with past trauma, how they're trying to make sense of their sexual interests and desires and fantasies. And they do see connections to past abuse. In fact, I've got, I'm overseeing a dissertation right now that is specifically looking at that question. What is the experience of kink? And why people, you know, the stories they tell about them to themselves about their interests in kink when they do have a history of, of childhood abuse or maltreatment. So I think that there's a lot more we need to understand about that. And I recognize that you're probably talking about 10% of the kinky population. Maybe a bit more. We don't have very good numbers on that. But the number clearly is not half or even a third. It's less than that. But it lends, you know, that experience lends itself, I think, to, and this is what we worry about, of like somehow in some way acknowledging that will reinforce the negative stereotype. Those people who do have a history of abuse or maltreatment and who have discovered kink, a lot of them are consciously using BDSM scenes and kink and uh, fetish scenes to consciously address their past and to try to, I won't say overcome it, but to integrate it, right? right? To bring it in and to make it part of them without overwhelming them, to recognize the trauma without having the trauma drive the rest of their lives. So there have been, and I've talked with a few other researchers who have been interested in this area of how do people actually use kink to heal? There's, there's a few people really interested in that and there's starting to be some research to gain evidence of to what's, what's really going on there. But that it happens that people do this is very well recognized in the kink community. And in fact, there are undoubtedly a few people who feel like they specialize in this. Mm -hmm. You know, they come to me if you want to work with uh, your past trauma. I don't know how I feel about that because <laughs> kink is not therapy, mm -hmm. but it can be therapeutic. Mm -hmm. Meaning I think it can be a way of really helping to really address the past trauma. Yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing all of that. And I remember recently when the student you're supervising posted a link about their study on social media, there was actually a lot of pushback to that because a lot of people don't like to bring up this idea that, you know, for some people there is that link between trauma and kinky sexual interest precisely because of what you said, where 
there's this fear that it's going to paint the broader community in a negative light, reinforce these negative stereotypes. But I think, you know, as a scientist, we can't discount those individuals' experiences and pretend like they don't exist. And I think that we'd be doing a disservice to them to not acknowledge that, you know, sometimes that link does exist. I, I thought it was important to mention, but yes, it's also important to be very clear that for the vast majority of people who are into kink, it, it's not because of some trauma or something like that. But that doesn't mean that we can't also acknowledge that, you know, sometimes there is that that link there for some individuals. So since we talked a little bit about, you know, how kink can be therapeutic for some people, let's talk about the psychological benefits of kink. So in what ways can kink be good for our mental well-being? I know you've done some research in this area looking at how kink and well-being are connected. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. There's a couple of, of avenues that we're investigating. One is much like consensual non-monogamy or polyamory or open relationships, doing kink, doing a kink scene, having a relationship that's built on like a power difference or uh, some fetish. The idea is in order to do this and to do it well, in a way that's really satisfying and in a way that everybody enjoys, you have to communicate. You have to talk about, right, your own erotic landscape. You have to, what turns me on, what doesn't turn me on. This works for me, but that, that closely related thing does not work for me. So I think there's something that is healing or therapeutic when you're trying to do a kind of relationship or a kind of sexuality that really requires you to be able to say what you want and to be very clear about what you don't want. And that whole process in and of itself is probably very healing for people because especially if they've had some sort of past trauma, you know, what they wanted did not matter. They had no language, right, to describe um, their desires or their limits. So being able to find the words and to put that into words and to have that received and accepted and honored by someone else is in fact the almost opposite kind of relationship that they might have experienced in an abusive situation. So just the communication, just the negotiation, the, the, the negotiation not just of the activity, the scene, but negotiation of the of the consent is, I think, healing. Mm -hmm. It's a conjecture, but it would be interesting to do a study on that. The other thing, though, tends to be in not just everything you do before the scene, but the scene itself and what happens afterwards, you know, what we call the aftercare. So the idea there is at least some, some proposals by some psychoanalytic psychologists and psychiatrists is the idea that by doing a scene that comes close to the original trauma, that kind of is reminiscent of it or is similar to it, that there's a couple of things about that that might be healing too in a different way. 
And that healing is often a couple of things. One is often when people are doing kink in order to heal from a past trauma, they do it in a way that where others bear witness, where others can see the scene or they know about it, or there's a sort of community of support around it. And that being seen, having something that in the past was very abusive, having that witnessed and accepted and then the person supported afterwards is an incredibly different experience than the original trauma. Mm -hmm where it was always in secret. Nobody was supposed to know about it. You couldn't talk about it. You certainly didn't get any support, right, afterwards. So in a way, much like communication around and negotiation, that whole aspect of having it seen and having it accepted by other people might be healing in and of itself. The other part, of course, is when you're actually doing a scene, a BDSM scene, and especially if you're going to be trying to, to address past trauma, it's really important to have safe words and to use them. And so that means the person who is undergoing the scene actually has control. And in the original trauma, there was no control. And so psychologically, the experience of knowing that there is some sort of control even as you're undergoing something that seems similar to past abuse, that is a very different space. That's a very different headspace. It's a very different psychological space to be in. So I think the consent aspect, uh, being witnessed, having that sort of circle of support is so counter to the original trauma that it serves perhaps some healing function because it is so opposite. And for people who don't have the history of trauma, what are some of the mental well-being benefits that they get out of engaging with kink? What are some of the, the positive psychological implications for them? Well, there are three areas in particular I look at. One is the, an experience of self-acceptance that is really important and tied to, I think, finding other people who accept your very strange, right, unusual interests or fantasies who don't reject you. So I think that there's, there tends to be a, an increase in self-acceptance. A lot of people report a lot of positive relations with other people that being able to express and explore and enact a lot of their fantasies, a lot of their kinks, they find it as uh, so intimate, right? So you're really sharing something, often something that you're not supposed to talk about or that other people, the mainstream society says you shouldn't even be thinking about. To be able to share that with someone else and to have that, again, accepted, even affirmed, that increases one's level of connection to other people and positive relations with others. The other one that's, I think, sometimes surprising, but not, if you really think about it, 
is doing kink really increases people's sense of autonomy, agency, self-determination. They, uh, be, again, being able to set up a scene and to be able to do it with someone else and to have it go just as you always imagined. Not that it always happens that way, but but when it does, there is this incredible sense of of being capable and of being able to articulate for yourself and um, articulate on your own behalf what it is you need and desire. And I think that that increase in autonomy is definitely a part of the personal growth that people experience when they start doing kink on a more you know conscious and regular basis. Yeah. And just uh, something else I would add to that, you know, another benefit that I've seen in my own work and in some other work that I've read about this is the way that kink activities can create this really immersive experience that draws you into the moment. It changes your headspace in a way that can kind of allow you to just be there in the moment, to not get lost in your head and to experience things more intensely than you might otherwise would. And so I think that's, you know, one of the other things that that sometimes draws people to kink. But we have much more to discuss, including kinky interests and whether they can change over the course of our lives, and also whether we should think about kink as a sexual orientation. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Promescent has everything you need for amazing sex, including their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men increase their stamina in the bedroom. It has Target's own technology, which allows you to desensitize only the areas you want and customize it for your body. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews. It's also recommended by more than 2,000 medical professionals. Promescent offers a number of other sexual wellness products, including their Vitaflux supplements, female arousal gel, and line of personal lubricants that come in water-based, silicon, and organic varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet, plain white bubble mailers to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is Dr. Richard Sprott, who studies diverse sexualities and relationships. So one of the questions I was going to ask you was, how common do you think kinky interests are, right? There's a lot of people who think that this is a super rare and uncommon thing, but there are other people who say, you know, everybody's a little bit kinky. So what's your take on that? Well, again, so much of that really depends on, well, are you talking about, are you asking the question like, has anyone ever had a kinky kind of fantasy? And if you ask that question, what you find is that, you know, 60, 70% of the population has had those fantasies or has maybe if you ask in terms of behavior at some point in their life, they may have done something kinky. It can be a large group, but if you ask the question or look for the people who do this a lot, right, who keep coming back to it who in fact uh, have as their sexuality a strong kinky flavor or kinky thread or streak, what you find is that now the number drops to 
don't know, 15%, 10%. And then I often think, and we have very little data on this, that well, what if you want to build a lifestyle or an identity around this and not just do it every once in a while or even do it relatively frequently, but not necessarily identify, right, as a kinky person or a leather person or something like that. I think the number then drops quite a lot still. One study, when they asked, do you consider yourself a BDSM practitioner, which I'm not sure what that term <laughs> means as an identity, but they asked it, and 7.9% of their relatively large sample said, yeah, they would consider themselves. Well, that was a much higher number than I expected. I was expecting 1% to 2%. But we don't have really good numbers on so who are these people who identify in this way and build a sexual identity around their kink or their fetish and who build a lifestyle that really, you know, puts this kind of sexuality more center in their lives? So that number in particular is a little mm -hmm. tricky. I'm still sticking with the 1% to 2% maybe, but now I'm starting to think that might be a little low. So it sounds like, you know, most people probably are a little bit kinky in the sense that they've had a, you know, kinky fantasy at some point in their lives. But for people who this becomes an identity and they go all in in terms of centering their life around it, you know, that is a much smaller percentage of the population. So since you're a developmental psychologist and you study, you know, how things change over time, I'm curious to hear your take on whether you think interest in kink is something that does change over the course of the lifespan. And I've collected some data on sexual fantasies, and I see that, you know, people at different ages tend to have different types of fantasies, which suggests to me that, you know, there might actually be some developmental time course to this. And it would make sense because our bodies change, our psychological needs change, what feels pleasurable changes. So just curious if you have any thoughts on that, or if you've ever collected any data looking at this through a developmental lens. Well, in fact, my current project is doing that right now. But the first part of the project was an in-depth interview of 70 people. It was like an hour and a half to two hour interview with each person. We asked a whole bunch of things, including when did you first realize, you know, you had a kink interests or kink desires, or when was the first time you did something kinky? And, you know, we had, even in that group of small group, right, of 70 people, we had this wide range of some people going, oh, well, you know, when I was six, when I was five, I saw an episode of Star Trek and in on the episode, there was like this planet where all the men were slaves and all the women were like, you know, in charge of the men. And I just found that completely fascinating. And, and then later on, right. Uh, the idea of submitting to somebody else became really something I focused on in my fantasy and my sexuality. So I, you know, I get, I have people saying, well, I can look back on something in childhood, right? That kind of laid the foundation for it. So there's this period in middle childhood, you know, six, seven, eight, when the adrenal glands start to mature and the growth spurt happens. And it's basically a preparation for puberty, 
that also seems to be the time when a lot of people start to just begin to have some sort of sexual awareness in some faint sort of way. You know, suddenly a, a kind of energy or they really begin paying attention in a way that's different. And then, of course, there are people who don't uh, experience that until they're like 13, 14, 17. I would say that we do have some evidence that, at least for some people, a lot of these interests and desires, they can trace back to pretty early, even before puberty. Other people, though, we interviewed a couple of people who didn't discover this part of themselves. And it's an important part of themselves, but they didn't discover this until, you know, middle adulthood. We talked to one person who didn't really start thinking about this or engaging in it until they were in their mid-60s. Mm-hmm. So I I tend to think of of it as there is this wide range of when people discover their kink desires. It is not that unusual that some people who really do make kink like center to their identity and their lifestyle, that they have the experience of being able to go all the way back to age eight, seven, six, five. And there might also, I've only heard some people talk about it. I haven't seen really any evidence. We're going to try to explore this in our next kink health survey, which will be coming out in the next couple months. But we are going to be looking a little bit more closely at whether or not it runs in families. Because we heard some stories in the uh, kink identity and sexuality study that, oh, yeah, well, I learned about kink because uh, my uncle was a, a, a leather man and was very open about it. So I knew that that was possible you know, as a young teenager or the one that, the one I still, I just can't imagine. But we had one person talk about, well, yeah, I discovered kink when I discovered my parents' toy box, toy chest, and, you know, found all of their BDSM toys. And, you know, they weren't necessarily very shy about it and they didn't try to hide it, that this was part of their relationship or part of their sexuality. And I'm like, growing up in a kinky household, is that real? Does that happen? So it's fascinating to think that perhaps, well, maybe there is something to some aspects of sexuality running in families in some sort of way. Is there a genetic component? I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, something that could support the idea that there's a genetic component is that, you know, I see linkages in my research between people's personality traits and the types of sexual fantasies they have. And we know that personality is to some extent genetic, right? It's heritable. And so, you know, it might not be that say that there's a kink gene, you know, that that predisposes you to interest in that. But if you have a predisposition to certain personality traits that that run in a family, you know, that could open the door to more likelihood of developing kinky interests at some point in your life. Along those lines, I tend to think of two things. One is it does seem to be the case that there's um probably a genetic component to levels of sexual desire or libido. Some people are just like really much more sexual. They, And this is the thing about actually about kinky people is that 
they tend to be sexually adventurous in all sorts of ways. And they tend to have more sexual experience over time, you know, sometimes more sexual partners. But they tend to be people who really like sex. And I think that there's probably an argument to be made that that can run in families again, that there can be a genetic component to one's level of sexual desire or how easily you're sexually aroused. So that's one thing. And recognizing that uh, often kinky people just are interested in all kinds, you know, very vanilla sex, very, you know, non-kinky sex, as well as kinky sex. The other is sensation seeking. And we know that that's a very strong genetic component. Mm-hmm. And it, it could be that those people really drawn to BDSM might be looking for intense sensation. And because in essence, their bodies really need that, thrive on that, can handle it more, is more um, in keeping with what it is that they need in terms of levels of sensation and arousal. Yeah. So between high libido and high sensation seeking, those things I think are inheritable. I don't know that I don't think that's the same thing as being kinky, but predispose one to, in the right social circumstance, to discover kink. Yeah, and it's fascinating, and I can't wait to see what you find in your research. But I think it's also important to go back to the point you mentioned about how kinky and trust can potentially emerge at any point in life. And, you know, I've also read about in some of the research, some older adults, 60s, 70s, and, and beyond, who develop kinky interests. And sometimes it's a way of coping with pain from chronic illness, which I found to be fascinating, which also just further points to the fact that people can be drawn to kink for very different reasons. And what might draw you to it could change it at different points in your life. But I want to ask you one more question that I think is really important and fascinating, which is about that paper you published recently with DJ Williams on whether BDSM is a sexual orientation or serious leisure. And I wrote a blog post about your paper and it was super popular. So people seem to be (laughs) really interested in this idea. And so I'm curious, do you think that BDSM could or should be thought of as a sexual orientation? And if so, why? So first off, I tend to uh, take the point of view that sexual orientation as a scientific concept um, is still kind of messy. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, I recognize that sexual orientation in some ways really came out of more of a, a activist political, you know, trying to find, you know, the, the human rights and the political freedoms of um, people who are different sexually, LGBT. But as a scientific concept, it's complicated and i'm not sure that we have it down having said that one of the things about it often that's pointed to is that well we know it's a sexual orientation being attracted to the same sex the same gender we know it's a sexual orientation because people suffer when they cannot express that it is more that it has a tremendous psychological cost to not express that or fulfill that. So we kind of recognize that sexual orientation is trying to capture that. And I hear that from some kinky people. Like they tried to put it away, but they were miserable. 
Uh, sometimes they tried to put it away because they went into the army and decided they can't play that way. Or they started taking care of a sick parent and they just had to put it away while they were caregiving. Or they had children or something like that. So there are times when people kind of walk away from kink and some of them really suffer for that. And others don't. So when I think about sexual orientation versus serious leisure, one of the big differences is you can build an identity on both, right? There are people who build an identity around like the bicycle racing, right? Well, that's a leisure, that's a sport, but they can build a very serious identity on that and lifestyle. So it's not that identity and lifestyle has to have an orientation as a foundation, but there is this sense in which serious leisure is more optional. It's like, well, if I walk away from it, it's, it's, it might, I might not be the, you know, all that happy that I walked away, but it won't kill me. And then I talk with some kinky people who've been kinky all their lives and have built a kink identity around that. And they just cannot imagine not being kinky. And that if they had to somehow give it up, it would be very costly. I think right now, based upon my work, that we're probably talking about 10 to 15% of kinky people really do experience their kink as an orientation. And I tend to think of that and, and likewise, I think there's probably 10 to 15% of people who experience their kink as serious leisure. This is nice. This is important. I like to do it. Um, I, it's not necessary. Right? This is a more serious leisure kind of thing. I'm pouring a lot of money and time into this thing, but it's not necessary. So I think most people are kind of like in the middle, you know, as they're trying to figure it out. If more people actually do experience it as orientation, then they realize. Mm -hmm. If you look at how many people identify, for example, as non-binary and gender, or if you look at people who are LGBT or queer, you've noticed the numbers tend to creep up over the generations. Why is that happening? Maybe it's because people are starting to feel like less stigmatized and more free to actually say what's going on. I think the same thing is probably happening with kink. People will start to say, no, actually, I experience it as core to my sexuality and core to my sense of self. And I don't think I can change it. I can't just decide to give it up. So I think that my little 1% to 2% or maybe 10%, whatever that number, that might creep up a little bit as the stigma of kink lessens. But still, I don't want to deny that there are people who experience kink and uh, do experience it as something that is somewhat flexible and fluid and optional and fun and perhaps even important to them, but not necessary the way that other people do. Yeah, so ultimately it sort of comes down to how do you define sexual orientation? What does that mean? What's the lens through which we view this? And, you know, different people, different scientists are all over the map with this. And 
to challenge my students sometimes. I assign them readings by Michael Seto, who has talked about sexual orientation as being much broader than just your attraction based on sex and gender and how we have all different kinds of orientations. You have attractions and orientations based on age and on species and, you know, all of these other sorts of things. And so that's just another framework for thinking about what it is. But it's controversial because whenever you expand the definition of sexual orientation, you have people who wonder about the political implications of it. And, you know, that leads you down a whole rabbit hole of of debate that we don't have time to get into today. But I thank you so much, Richard, for sharing your thoughts and your research with us. It was truly a pleasure to have you here. So can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Well, I would say the best place would be to go to Tashra, T-A-S-H-R-A dot O-R-G to see some of the health and kink research. Uh, frankly, I think if you could just Google my name, you'll find that all the things I'm doing and I'm interested in. But I think that's probably a good place to start and an easy way to reach me is through Tashra. Well, great. Thanks again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, to learn more about our kinky sexual fantasies. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>